Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajasad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for tr- for trying something new, especially after 200 episodes. Yeah, it's, it's about time. <laughs> so we decided to talk about the fact that it was 200 episodes on episode 199. And now we're talking about it again on 201, but on the actual 200 episode, which was last week, we did not mention it whatsoever, did we, Sammy? No, not at all. We just trucked on through without even remembering that it was our 200th episode. At least I forgot. A stealth 200 episode, I think. Um, So thank you for trying something new. If this is the first time you're you're listening, you only listen to podcasts as soon as they crest episode 200. That's a good strategy. Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. You can find... My work at autotrader.ca, as well as EV Pulse and Nouveau Magazine. And Ben, where can people find your work? You can find my work at Haggerty, at Motor Trend, and at Inside Hook. Very cool. This week, we've got a bunch of cars to talk about. I think um, three. We've got three cars to talk about, Ben. I want you to lead this conversation this week because you've got a car that I think is really uh, – actually, I think your emotions about this car are pretty strong. So let's hear what you've got to say well, you about know, whatever you're driving. You know, I am completely objective, Sammy, like a robot that you're – you know, your favorite friend. Um, my, ro- my Subaru robot Your friend? Subaru robot about all things automotive. So I don't get emotional. But this is a car that we've talked about in the past in a very different form. And I think that that is something that's going to be germane to the conversation about it today. I drove the BMW 2 Series Grand Coupe. And the more importantly, I drove the base model, the entry-level 228i. And that's the, uh, I think, least expensive BMW you can currently buy, Sammy. Is that correct? That sounds about right. And it's important to talk about the Grand Coupe because this is not the usual 2 Series, which is a rear-wheel drive-based um, vehicle. The M, sorry, the the Grand Coupe models are front-wheel drive based, and they kind of line up against something like the Mercedes CLA or the Audi A3 and S3. So this is a car that, as Sammy described, is based on a platform that's shared with Mini. So that's why Mm -hmm. it has a front-wheel drive heritage. Uh, In North America, it's being sold in all-wheel drive only because BMW has a specific performance image that they want to live up to, and I can understand that. Um, Sammy, you drove the the M235i version, right? Yes, I drove a prototype of that, and I thought it was pretty good. Um, I thought it was a valid competitor for the CLA at the time. The new CLA hadn't come out, so I, I was just comparing it to the last generation CLA or the first generation CLA. So the version of the car that I drove has the same engine as the one that Sammy drove, except it's been detuned. It's 228 horsepower versus 301 the suspension is not quite as aggressive, although my car had some various M enhancements made to it. It was still very much a base model car. And when we say Grand Coupe, you know, it's it's a four-door with a, a sloping rear roof line. It's not as dramatic as what you'd see in a six-series Grand Coupe or a four-series Grand Coupe. It's pretty livable in the back. The trunk, decent space there, too. I was able to haul some boxes. Uh, there was definitely stuff I couldn't fit in the trunk, but in general, for a small car... The proportions, they make sense. They're they're not really... Um, I, I didn't really feel like it was too tiny to be useful. Um, but aspects of the car that I didn't like had to do with the drivetrain, Sammy. And I know that mm-hmm. you enjoyed the 301 horsepower version. You said it felt quick. It felt reasonably fun to drive. The version of the car that I had, it was absent all of those characteristics. That's so interesting to me because I, I first of all, 
I love that you kind of like you like it, it feels like you're asking me to defend myself uh, on my or justify my feelings of the two of the two series Grand Coupe. I don't think I have to because I, we've both driven a car that's closely related to this, which is the X2. Um, and I drove the M35 version of that and I thought it was a wicked car to drive. It was so much fun. A, a cute little hot hatch that delivered um, in all the ways that I think BMW wanted it to. So I felt that uh, pretty much that I had the same uh, the same feelings of that X2M vehicle in the 2 Series Grand Coupe. So once they removed those aspects, those like engaging aspects of the powertrain, this car becomes lost. Is that what you're telling me? It just well, isn't the same the same vehicle. I really like the X2M35i as well, and Hot Hatch is a great way to describe it. More accurate, I think, than crossover, and we did a whole episode on that, but. It's really strange because I feel like it, driving the 228, there was nothing about it that made me think, oh, if this had more power, I would enjoy it more. It, it just it, dropped the ball in, in every form of refinement and, and, and delivery? Like, what is that? So the car itself, it feels like it wants to be some. It, it can't decide what it wants to be. The, the four-cylinder engine with 228 horsepower, it's enough power to drive around every day. No question about that. But in terms of how that power was delivered, it was either, if I put it in sport mode, it felt too snappy and abrupt. If I kept it in comfort mode, there was a real throttle lag that was problematic at times. There were times where I was at an intersection and I wanted to pull through the intersection with oncoming traffic. And there was enough of a delay from hitting the throttle to having forward momentum that I felt uncomfortable. I'm not saying it's dangerous. I'm just saying that I had to plan how I was driving the car when I was just driving it in normal mode. And then compare that to the suspension system, which wasn't all that comfortable. It was choppy at times, but it never really felt sporty. It's kind of like the cars in this liminal space between being a sports sedan and being an entry-level comfortable luxury car. And it didn't quite know how to navigate that. What what makes the situation worse, I think, is being an entry-level vehicle means that all of the other aspects that might redeem a uh, a BMW, like uh, quality interior or high, like a high-quality interior, like um, really tactile feel in terms of uh, the switch gear or the high technology uh, that you might expect from a luxury brand, when you when you're dealing with a with a more entry-level vehicle, you don't have those things to help save the vehicles like. Uh, that help save those sort of expectations, right? Yeah, and and also all those things you just mentioned, for people who are coming to the brand for the first time, and it, let's say they want the most inexpensive BMW because they either want the badge or they want to try out the brand, this is what they're going to be facing. They're, they're going to be dealt the hand that is the 228i. The interior, it's fine. I mean, it's not particularly great. It's, it's not, I, I don't have any problems with it. Some of the switch gear feels a little cheap on the center console. We've talked in the past about how um, BMW likes to do that single panel button thing where it's like a, a continuous piece of plastic and yeah. it, it, there's like buttons that are raised on it, but it's all one piece. It, it, it doesn't feel super premium, but I'm not really going to fault it for that. Uh, every, all the controls make sense. It's It's easy enough to drive. It's just... It's not a rewarding vehicle to drive, and it doesn't feel particularly special. It doesn't feel really luxurious. And it's weird to think that in the X2, which is a very similar platform and has more power, all those thoughts were gone. Like, I was engaged and I was interested. I I, I just can't see a more powerful 2 Series Grand Coupe as being something I would want unless the configuration of the throttle response, the transmission, and the suspension is dramatically different. Mm-hmm. What about the exterior design? Do you think that's worthy of, of 
you know, discussion in this in this vehicle? I, I think it looks okay. I, I don't I think it's at least as attractive as an A3 or a CLA. It's very mm-hmm. similar to how a 3 Series looks. Uh, I think it does carry the BMW DNA in, in its lines. And I think it's easily identifiable to anyone that it is a BMW. And I like the size of it. As I mentioned before, it's it's reasonably practical, but it's, it's a good size for driving around the city and for parking. And I had no issues uh, dealing with traffic. It's just there's something missing from the experience. I, I really didn't feel like I was driving a premium car. And I think that if you're going to be paying a premium price, and this car starts at 37.5 in the United States, I think you really should get something special for your money. And and you know, upgrading to that M235i, it's going to cost you another eight grand. Jeez, something that's a like lot. That. <laughs> that's actually quite a lot of money. For I think it. it's between seven thousand and eight thousand dollars to get into that car. So it's you know not twenty percent of the price, right? Yeah, I think it starts at forty six if you want an M235, and at that point. You're four thousand dollars more than a base three series. Mm-hmm. So, what do you want out of a car? Do you want to have the fastest, smallest BMW, or do you want to have a larger, more comfortable, and I would say more versatile version of a sedan, the three series that you know everyone typically that's the BMW. They that's that's their first BMW. So, mm-hmm. I, I it's a hard argument to make for the M two thirty five i. When the 3 Series is sitting right there. This is actually a, a common complaint, I think, with the CLA, the 2 Series, and the A class, and the A3, is that they they start to tread on the feet of the typical entry-level vehicles, which is the C-Class, the 3 Series, and the A4. And those products, like, the brands have made their have made bank on those on those products on those three products. And watering those down further, I don't think does the brand any 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 favors and it doesn't and, do the customer any favor either and i don't even think they're watering them down because i feel like the experience different the difference in experience between a two series grand coupe and a three series is immense yeah i feel like the three series even in its base form is still a fairly relaxed and comfortable vehicle whereas the two series grand coupe is more frenetic and less composed I say this all the time. It really bugs me when BMW's usage of the mini platforms and powertrains ends up being these really dud vehicles, like really poor, uh, unengaging, non-energetic, um, and and they lose the charm that is usually found within the interior of a mini product. It, it, they like a mini has a very unique charm inside and outside of their vehicle, and you can see it. You can feel it the moment you jump in. And then when they use that platform and that powertrain, they kill everything fun that made a, a mini product a mini. And then the BMW is left with this shell. Like honestly, a, a, a it's missing everything that it could it could be. All the potential is lost. And you know, it's weird for me to say, but if I was recommending, if you needed a BMW this size and you were you were dead set on this form factor, uh, I would recommend the X2 over this mm-hmm. uh, or the X1. No. Why? No. For me, I think that, uh, you know, Grand Coupe is supposed to be stylish. The X2 is supposed to be stylish. Oh. I, that's that's what I would go with. I also wanted to throw in the fact that with the M Sport package that I had on my car, I think the price was over 40000 And you could easily push it up to like forty six, forty seven. So you're really you're really crossing wires at that price point in a BMW dealership. You should be looking at something else. I wanted to like this car more than I did. And I feel like... It's possible for BMW to retune the drivetrain and the suspension just to make it more enjoyable or less jittery to drive. 
but it's hard for me to recommend this car. There's nothing wrong with it. It's if you. I don't know. I think I think laggy throttle response and and is a pretty significant thing. I do recommend you. I can't wait to see how you feel about driving the M two thirty five on because I found that to be a for a far more finished product, and that was a prototype. And you know, laggy throttle. It's just because in a BMW, I have expectations. Where yeah. if you if you went into this car with no expectations, you'd be like, okay, this is this is acceptable, and that's I feel like it's an acceptable BMW, but it's not a special BMW, and I think that's mm-hmm. problematic for the brand. Okay, um, yeah, I think that's worth. I, I was wondering how you would feel, especially because we you had mentioned a a vehicle. I, I know it doesn't have a lot to do with this car. In fact, it, it's a completely different brand, a different. Um, uh, segment, but the Mazda three that you drove with that turbocharged engine, like that's felt like a far more premium, a little bit more of a refined vehicle, and also has a, a gorgeous interior to to deal with as well. Like the, that seemed like a far more interesting purchase at that price point. The Mazda three turbo felt like a more refined, more luxurious car, no question, than the than the two twenty eight i version of the BMW. So if it had a badge like that, we'd be happy. Right, if it had a BMW badge to go with it, it would it would be great. I I suppose so. I'm not saying that the Mazda three feels like a BMW. I don't think it does, but I do think it feels like you're getting more for your money. I think those things feel pretty pretty decent, um, I, and I think that those those entry level uh, front wheel drive based um, luxury vehicles are are they don't feel they they feel underwhelming every time. Unless you get the AMG or the S3 or the M Sport version of the car. And some people are going to want to buy the badge. And it's, But what's yeah. interesting about all of this talk is, you know, we look at the regular 2 Series, the two-door, and it doesn't suffer from this. It's, no. It's, well, that that feels like a finished product. I mean, it's a real-real drive. It, it drives so well, even in the four-cylinder, like, setup. I absolutely love that vehicle. So it's possible that this, you know... Is it this platform? Because no, I'm pretty sure it's the same thing under the X2, and I like the X2 a lot, and you like the 235. I think it's just this particular iteration of it doesn't have the, what it takes to to be appealing enough to spend the money. Wild. That's a that's a that's tough, man. Um, and it just points to a really strange pattern of of product development at BMW. Sometimes they hit it. They hit it right. Like we've talked about the 8 Series and the X7 and the X5, and those things feel like stunning products. Um, even the X2 M35 that we were talking about. But then there seems to be some really like moments where BMW drops the ball, um, like with this 2 Series, like the X1 in your situation. Um, and even, you know, I think the 4 Series has been disappointing a couple of times, and the 3 Series has a few here, like hits and misses. It's interesting that they they struggle to have to to find consistency. Well, I think that in the case of the two series Grand Coupe, this is a car that was built for a market segment, not necessarily for a customer. And um, I think for a price too. Yeah, it was there. They needed to fill a hole in the lineup, and they didn't have a car to go up against the A three really. Uh, mm. So they ended up with this. And when you're doing that, you're going to compromise things. Part of that compromise, probably the mini platform. Part of the, another part of that compromise, making it an entry level version like the two twenty eight i instead of just having it be an M version of the car. So it's it, it's a car that was never it wasn't designed to take over the world. It was designed to offer a a price point 
and a form factor that's going to get people in the dealership. And maybe they don't buy it. Maybe they end up buying the 3 Series, which is even more of a win for BMW. Right. But uh, it's that that's kind of where I feel the company is coming from with this vehicle. Interesting. Anything else you want to add about this BMW 2 Series that you drove? No, I mean, that that... You know, to summarize it, it's a it's a vehicle where there's nothing really wrong with it, but there's nothing compelling that makes me want to spend luxury dollars on this uh, entry-level version of the car. I totally understand. I want to move this conversation to a, another product that I have previously been very critical of, and that's the Ra- the Toyota RAV4. And I think you and I have both discussed the RAV4. The RAV4 is, is, is a very popular product. A lot of people buy the RAV4, but I think critically, it never seems to measure up to the competition. I think it's been relying on its reputation of being super reliable um, or maybe a dealership uh, a dealership experience being very familiar to a, to a buyer, and that's what makes it so popular. Well, I mean, um, you, you, you have been hard on the RAV4. I've always liked it, and in particular, I've liked the hybrid, Sammy. I think that the hybrid version of the RAV4 is one of the best compact SUVs out there, and not just because it's fuel efficient, but because of the extra performance that comes with that drivetrain. Okay, so I think that I agree with you on the RAV4 hybrid being the the model you should be like people should be looking at i'm still pretty harsh on it because i don't think it's it's i mean with the exception of it being a hybrid and being a bit more fuel efficient than its its rivals the product i drove stunned me it really changed my mind about the the rav4 and that is the rav4 prime which is the plug-in hybrid version of the RAV4. And the reason that this car suddenly changed my mind is it has a lot to do with that powertrain because now it suddenly has 302 horsepower. It is the fastest four-door vehicle in the in the Toyota lineup, which blows my mind. Um, it does 0 to 60 in like five seconds or something. Um, it, it, it feels suddenly like a finished product, like a car that never de- that you will never demand uh, a lot from and because of that extra that extra juice from the from the electric powertrain and that extra horsepower in the top end as well you end up feeling a little bit more you know confident and that really does a lot to change the the my my uh, perception of the rav4 it suddenly no longer feels like a product that is just phoning it in and now it feels like something that's finished and you and, didn't get that from the 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 original version of the hybrid no, not really. The, it felt like the last. It almost felt like the last generation hybrid, just in a newer body style. It didn't feel like a a step forward for me. Okay. So, it, and honestly, I really wish there was way more to talk about. I mean, it is a plug-in hybrid version of the Rav Four. It uses it has a the same two point five liter four cylinder, which again is still super buzzy when you really push it. Um, when you're when you're trying to go extra fast, um, I really don't like the the the, the sound of this motor at all. Um, but because of that plug-in hybrid powertrain, you end up not relying on that motor very often. And um, it, overall, it, it, what, it, what I'm trying to say is it negates the negative aspects of this car, which was, to me, the 2.5 is loud and buzzy, not, not very powerful. That automatic that came with the 2.5 in the non-hybrid was, a t- was gimpy. It, it really it struggled to change gears at times. Um, I, I, I also felt the car felt a little... Um, un, what's the best word to, to, to say it? Um, it wasn't very robust feeling on the road. It, it felt like it wa- it wavered a, ro- a lot in its, its lane. It, uh, it had a really soft suspension that never felt completely settled. Now you've got the extra weight of this hybrid powertrain and that battery, and now the car feels a little bit more robust. It feels solid on the road. I was very happy with the way that this vehicle um, like handles itself 
and that extra power just cha- just saves everything else as well. So, so how how much is it going to cost to get all of these improvements that you're so into? Like compared so, to the regular RAV4 and also compared to the, the, the regular hybrid? So the RAV4 Prime starts at 38000 uh, for an SE model, and then you can XE an XSE model for forty one extra thirty thousand dollars or so. And in comparison, as as far as I can tell, it is. Uh, let me just make sure that I got my numbers right because there are, um, the, like the the trim walk for the Rav Four Hybrid, it goes up to what's I think known as a limited model, and you don't get that. Um, yeah, you get a. a let me see. Limited is thirty-seven. So you're paying an extra thousand bucks for this prime hybrid, um, and then or an extra three thousand dollars for um, the XSC, the top the top trim level. And then when you add up all these all these extra um, uh, packages, there's like a, an even higher premium package with which adds like a head-up display um, and a different interior setup. You end up spending, I believe, it's just under fifty thousand dollars, forty-eight thousand. And you wow. also have to add in that you also have to add in that there are rebates for for electric vehicles like this, which will help bring the the cost down. I think that the base level Ram Four Prime, the SE, seems like a really good deal because I think when you add in those rebates, in some cases, you can get um, a car that's cheaper than a Rav Four Hybrid. Okay, so so tell me more about this drivetrain. Not much to talk to you about, man. You can get uh, so I think the most important thing to discuss though is the range. Forty-two miles of all-electric range, which doesn't sound like a lot, but as soon as that's finished, the car acts like a total norm- normal hybrid. Still averages thirty-eight, almost forty miles per gallon, depending on how you drive it. Um, and I think that's perfectly fine. I think there's there's no issues there. It also has one of those um, buttons that allow you to save the electric range for you know a special occasion of some of some like sort, like a birthday or a quinceanera. It, Yes, or yeah, when you're not, when you're, I don't, I don't really know, but, um, and you still get access to that super powerful drivetrain when the when you when the electric motor is or the electric battery is depleted. So it's not, you know, there is no reason to just not drive this thing like a hybrid whenever you can, and then, you know, save a couple of bucks for forty two miles by using an electric powertrain. Well, I think the forty two miles is it's if you want to save it, it's so you can use it around town where you can really stretch it out. Right, I think that's a good idea. Um, or yeah, like, um, just running around town or something like that. Or if you, if you get into like a, an EV battery only street race. Right. And those, those are, big, those are coming up these days. They are. It is race wars. EV edition is coming up in the desert and I know I'll see you there, Sammy. And we'll yeah. see, we'll see Me if you can my... pay, see if you can pay for your own shrimp. Uh, I need to get my Mitsubishi iMeave ready for this, this race. <laughs> That's cheating because doesn't the iMeave weigh 300 pounds? <laughs> yeah. Because it's like mostly papier-mâché and <laughs> popsicle sticks. Um, iMeave I also... kind of feels like Mitsubishi came to the EV party, but like they, it was like they, they woke up the day before and they're like, oh no, tomorrow is the day the iMeave goes on sale. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> they worked all night and this is what you get. Um, I will discuss that the the it's important to bring up Mitsubishi because in this segment of a compact plug-in hybrid, the only other seg- the only other vehicle I think at this time um, that's available is the Mitsubishi Outlander PHEV. Yeah, but the I Outlander that, is not compact. I think that's a stretch. I mean, it's as compact as a Rav Four is. You think so? Yeah, for sure. Wow. All right. I've always, and, doesn't it have a third row of seating? An option for a third, not in the not in the PHEV, as far as I understand. Okay. 
And um, this thoroughly whoops the the Outlander PHEV in every way. It's it it has a far higher quality interior. It has more technology. It has a better powertrain. I, I it just feels. Yeah. Na- name an SUV that doesn't whip the Outlander <laughs> PHEV in every meaningful category. That's a good point. I mean, uh, anything within the past five years has a pretty decent chance here. Definitely. Uh, Even some classic uh, classic rides might have a chance. <laughs> so that's an important thing to, to bring up. I think Mitsubishi has been riding this. It's a really weird thing. The Mitsubishi Outlander PHEV is a pretty popular product. It sells surprisingly well. But now there's a product that there's no that like completely outclasses the Outlander PHEV in every way, and that's the Rav4 Prime. And I don't know how how Mitsubishi will survive this. They'll probably just be they'll, they'll probably just do price like they did with the Mirage. That's it. I mean, it's it's obvious that they're not spending money um, keeping the vehicle competitive, right? They're not updating the vehicle. They're not they're not adding features to bring it. It's I guess what I'm trying to say is it feels like a single-generation vehicle where they, they did the design, they bought the tooling, and they're going to build it until some type of federal regulation changes, like for safety or something, and they can't conceivably retrofit it to the current vehicle, and then okay. it'll disappear from the market. Interesting. Um, I will admit there is one significant um, limitation to the RAV4 Prime. It has less total cargo space than the regular hybrid and gas models. Not a not a ton, um, but it, it's it's just something worth mentioning that you. Well, what's the difference? Up. Oh man, I don't have the actual figures here. Let me get these. Let me just get make these them up. Things. Just make them up. No, I'm not making them up. We have <laughs> listeners who really pay attention to what we're. That's true. They do fact check about. us all the time, especially Sammy with his his uh, total preparation for the show every every week. So the the full, um, what the. Sorry. <laughs> the full cargo volume of the RAV4 is just under 70 cubic feet. And okay. then when you get the, the Prime, yeah, that's not right. It's also 78. I mean, I mean 70, 69. So, oh, sorry. It's here behind the rear seat. Uh, you've got 33 cubic feet behind the rear seat. In the Rav Four Prime, and you get an extra four-ish cargo uh, feet, uh, cubic feet of cargo space in the um, in the in the in the hybrids. But somehow total space is the same. Yeah, I don't know. So what do they remove from the? Does <laughs> the does the, the front seat, front passenger seat in the Prime not have a headrest? Is no, like it, move, like it just moves up further. It, it moves forward much further. Wow. <laughs> um, it's also a significantly heavier vehicle. I mean, we're talking about a difference of about 500 pounds um, between the two between the two vehicles. Wow, Almost that is that is fair, very significant for a vehicle that size. Yeah, so that's what I mean. You, you, if you're looking for a car, I mean, it's it it blows my mind that this thing is still so quick. Um, around five seconds, like I said, definitely under six seconds for zero to sixty time. Um, and a car that that is shaped like that doesn't look like a performance vehicle in any way or form, um, just thanks to a really good set of electric motors, right? So, is there anything you know in particular that you feel you you want to wrap up about this vehicle? Anything that um, I, I know you're astounded by just how much you like it compared to your 
total tepid take on the previous version of the RAV4. Yeah. This is a vehicle, you would now buy this vehicle, right? Like if you were in the market for this vehicle, this is a top contender for a crossover for you. And I don't, I don't just mean for hybrid. Like if you were buying a crossover of this size, is the Prime something you that's worth paying more for? It's it is for one only if you do your math and get the the federal uh, sorry the the what is it the rebates or the incentives if you can cash in on those this car will be definitely worth it there's no doubt about that it'll it it it's just so it's such a good deal and here in Canada there's a, a set of different rebates that you can get um, from the federal level and the provincial level. Well, only three, uh, only three provinces offer. Actually, we don't even, Ontario doesn't even offer it anymore. So it's just BC and Quebec now. Okay. So in, in Ontario, that, that incentive is just not there. But if you lived in Quebec, I don't see why you wouldn't buy, um, a RAV4 Prime. Well, because you've already bought an Outlander PHEV, Sammy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And you so, can't possibly sell it. <laughs> also true. So it is so important that you do your your math, you do your research and find out what incentives and rebates and, and uh, what other money is there for you because these things are making it's they're making it so easy to buy one of them one of these and now with that that excellent performance and that pretty I mean so few other compromises it just seems like no there there's no reason not to buy one other than the fact that apparently they're incredibly difficult to get like they're all almost all sold out which is why well, it's because you right? keep hyping them up on your Twitter account. Sam. Oh yeah, sure. But it's funny because truly, I, and I said it on the podcast, I see no, there are so many great products in this segment of compact crossovers that make the RAV4. It blows my mind when I see the RAV4 sales numbers so high. And um, as we mentioned last week, the rogue is another, the new rogue is fantastic. The CRV is much more practical the Ford Escape has a ton of technology and has great powertrains to go with it. The Mazda CX-5 has a beautiful interior and exterior and has a wicked, like, 300-horsepower motor. There are so many different cars in this segment that outdo the RAV4 in every single way. But for it to still be one of the sales leaders, it really it, it, it makes me, like, worried for the consumer because they could have gotten something better in, in, in no matter what their priorities were but now with the rav4 prime you've got a product that is thoroughly better than some some competitive um, products so staying on the topic of suvs i know you drove something else this this past week that is equally new and a lot of people are curious about it and it's it's a little bit more expensive than the rav4 prime but surprisingly not that much more in certain versions right so i drove the brand new land rover defender uh, and in particular, I drove the special edition. It's called the 110 First Edition, which is a four-door version of the vehicle. And it's um, this is this starts at just under seventy thousand dollars, sixty-eight thousand US. But to be and, clear, you can get a two-door version of the vehicle, right? Yeah, you can get a two-door version of the vehicle right now, as well as special edition, which is sixty-five thousand dollars. And then you can get a, a regular four-door version of the vehicle for just around fifty. So we're talking about a car that's twenty thousand dollars more than the than the base model, which is a lot of money. Yeah. So the it's important to bring up this um, Defender. There's a couple of things. First of all, the Defender nameplate, as far as I understand, was not available in North America before, or was a long time ago. It was. I think they stopped selling it in the early '90s or mid to late '90s, uh, hmm. and before it, it, it continued on as a gray market import because it was a, a very old school rugged SUV. 
Uh, off-roaders loved it, and it was a, it became a status symbol. It was very similar to the G-Wagon in that respect, mm-hmm. in terms of how it handled and how it looked. The new vehicle, though, to me, Sammy, it tries to look similar in the sense that it has upright styling, but... I don't see a lot of heritage in the way the Defender... The the Defender, to me, looks more like a Discovery than it does the original Defender. That's just me. I mean, it's clear that the design language has changed. It's still boxy, and there are a ton of accessories. Now, the product I have, the one that I tested, had this ginormous um, roof rack as well as a lockbox on the side of... An external lockbox on the side of the vehicle, which threw me for a loop because I was doing all this, uh, all these measurements of my garage at home to make sure I could bring this thing home safely, and I just barely made it, um, even with this huge um, roof rack. And, it, uh, you know, one of the things about Jaguar Land Rover is that they have so much technology at their disposal, and that's what this new Defender looks like. It looks like a... It, it truly does look like a retro inspired yet futuristic designed um, off-roader. I think it looks really cool. And one of the things that visually it tricks you because from a distance it actually looks pretty compact until you get up to it and you realize how tall it is and how big it is. It's a big vehicle. It is extremely large. So let me get into some of the the specs on this vehicle and I can talk about the way that this car, um, this SUV drove and whether or not I I was impressed with it with my short my short time first of all as i said under 60 under seventy thousand dollars for this it has a three liter turbocharged mild hybrid um vehicle um, powertrain which makes just under 400 horsepower it'll do zero to 60 in about 5.8 seconds so it's slower than the rav4 prime a little bit slower even though it's much less powerful okay um and it also it also packs um all these really impressive cameras um, to to help you place this large vehicle um, either on an off-road trail or a really tight parking spot, which is what I ended up um, using it for. I was impressed with the way that they integrate all of these cameras. There's like this external view that it can somehow, like almost like a like a chase cam in a video game. Where you like a kind of like a, is it like a composite view? Yeah, is how do you describe a composite? Well, like you know how a lot of these overhead 360 cameras, they take the footage uh, of cameras mm. on side in the front of the vehicle, and then they make like one image. Okay, so there is that where you have that really good over the like a bird's eye view camera, but there's also like you can get a uh, how do you like a third a three quarter view of the vehicle from a distance almost. It's insane. It, it is like as if you wanted to see how the wheel articulation is, or the the what's on, what's right underneath the wheels or under the do- the door panels. Um, it's like pulling the car away from from you. It's really impressive. There's also a camera that like a camera feed that can show you. Haven't you always wanted a glass bottom car? Well, now you can get that in this vehicle because it would track sort of what what the car is passing and then show you. Um, where that is in relative to your wheels underneath the vehicle. Is this the vehicle that also has the transparent hood feature? It's almost like that, yeah. The, I think that was a concept that they have applied in a, in a production form here. Um, it's not quite the transparent hood, but yeah, you can see th- what's happening underneath the vehicle between the two wheels using the the infotainment screen. Okay. Is that what it was? Is that yeah, how the? I, I think okay, so. Yeah. so. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't have a complete um, recollection of how the transparent hood feature worked. Um, I was. I was 
okay, look, all of the all of the things you'd expect from a very large um, SUV apply here. It it has some body roll, it has some lean and, and pitch when you hit the gas or the throttle in in anger. Um, it is extremely loud, especially on the highway and with that metal roof rack buzzing away. Uh, I would really not recommend those features. Um, but honestly, it was really cool to drive. It was really there was something about it. It had charm, which I think is is hard to find these days. It had a feature. It just people saw it and they looked really impressed with it. Um, the the cabin was somewhat smartly laid out. There was nothing that made me. It was very practical. There was a lot of cargo space. I have um, little cubbies and and you know whatever you want to call them shelves for everything. It, and it it complied with everything that I needed to. It wasn't the fastest car, and like I said, it was very loud, and it wasn't the most agile, but it got the job done. I mean, it, and all those like extra tech features help it stand out and make it feel like it's going to be really confident off road as well. So, is this a you know going back to what we were talking about the two series? It, you're saying that the Defender is competent, but is this something that deserves a luxury badge? Deserves to be paid more for? Uh, is this something where if you bought it and you pay that amount of money, you'd be like, yeah, I'm very satisfied with this. This is exactly the experience I want. Is, is, it, is it something that gives you a rugged feel like, you know, we, we talk a lot about how the Wrangler has this whole image associated with it. Does the Defender kind of have that? Or is, are people going to look at that and be like, it's just another Range Rover or another Land Rover, sorry, which is not a bad thing. No. But maybe not necessarily what they're going for. It's definitely, you're, you bring up the, you brought up the G-Wagon earlier. It reminds me more of the G-Wagon than a Wrangler. It kind of it kind of plays between those two um, between those two vehicles, where one is a a very ostentatious off-roading vehicle. Looks like it would handle itself well in a in a zombie apocalypse. I think the Defender the Defender will handle that sort of situation as well. But it it also felt felt much more sorry. The the G wagon can sometimes feel a little bit like it's too much for off-roading. Like it just doesn't feel comfortable at some points. And it also feels like it's compromised to make a point, like that it's a G-Wagon and it'll never change. And the Defender did not have that same compromised feel to it. It felt far more modern and a little bit more comfortable. Is it worthy of the Land Rover name? Absolutely. Now, the real question is, I think over the years, the Defender nameplate, at least in North America, has gained some sort of momentum as being sort of unobtainium. And that that helped pro- propel its popularity. When you saw one, you would go, "Oh yeah, that's a guy who that's that's a driver who knows what they they're looking for." Um, and they went out of their way; they went to th- to, through some inconveniences to bring a gray market imported Defender to their to their to their driveway. Now, with it being so easily or much more accessible, will that will that you know will that feeling? Yeah, will that feeling catch on? Will that no. cachet continue? I don't no. think so. So is it is it going to end up looking like in some more affluent neighborhoods, just like a, another Land Rover, uh, like a Discovery, like you said? I think so. I, I don't That's see, tough. That's I not mean, a great situation for them because then they have all these products that have the same image, essentially. Well, they're going to have to work hard with marketing uh, to create a different image from the Discovery. I don't think the styling does it. Maybe for some people it does. And the fact that we're glossing over here is that you can buy a two-door. And right. that makes it very, very different from the Discovery. So I, I think the two-door is definitely a vehicle that stands on its own in this segment. I don't think there's a single other luxury two-door SUV on the market. And uh, Land Rover has played in that area before with the um, the convertible version of the – was the Evoque? Yeah. Or, yeah. So they've, they've done that before. This is a much more mainstream two-door. 
there are not a lot of two-door SUVs, period. But I mean, like I said, in luxury, there's none. So with in that sense, it's a, it's a success. The four-door, I don't know if it's a vehicle that needed to exist and if it will have the same level of acceptance. I think it needed to exist for Land Rover themselves. I think the Defender is an iconic vehicle um, for the Land Rover lineup. And if they didn't have one or if they didn't offer one, they wouldn't they just wouldn't feel complete as a brand. I mean, yeah, for sure, but it's like having a Jeep without a Wrangler, right? But well, I don't I I don't know if it's that extreme. I mean, the the Wrangler's been on sale here forever. The 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 Defender is something that we know from legend, you know, like so this vehicle doesn't see sound legendary to me. It sounds like a competent luxury SUV, and I'm not sure that's enough to to keep the flame alive when Land Rover already offers several similar products. So I will admit, again, I didn't have a a, a hefty amount of time behind the wheel. I did drive it a lot for the for the few days that I had it, but it wasn't the same length of time that I had in previous vehicles. So, uh, and I didn't get to do any serious off roading, but I did some, you know, I messed around in the snow and that was it and it felt fine but i would love to get it for a longer period of time and a little bit more off-road oriented again though is that important for what this car's buyers will be using it for as you as you said i think this might end up being used by affluent um, road goers rather than anyone actually going off-road well, it was a virtual guarantee that's what it'll be used for but the two-door has a better chance i think mm-hmm. uh, anything else you you want to say in wrapping it up i was impressed with how much attention that it got Truly, I did not expect it to get that much attention. Um, I guess it does stand out as a very different vehicle on the road that people just would not have expected um, or have been want, like are curious about. It, it visually, people were were curious about it for sure. And that's it. All anything right. else you want? What are you? What do you want to talk about? I I don't have anything else to say. I haven't driven the Defender. I've I've been in the presence of the Defender, but I don't really have any experience with it. So, all right. So that's it for this week's episode. That's true. And what are you going to be talking about next week, Sammy? What am I going to be talking about next week? Oh, no. I I feel like that catches you off guard like every episode, (laughs) even though I've asked you 201 times now. (laughs) Um, I have the Kia Soul EV, which I've talked about in the past, but I will also have um, a, what is the name of this car? The Audi e-tron Sportback. Okay, well, that, that'll be interesting. I, I am going to be talking about the Nissan Rogue, which uh, Sammy had driven a couple of months ago, and I'm very curious to compare no, compare notes with him. Okay, yeah, likewise. Um, I'm, I think the new Rogue has a very significant part to play in, the seg- in its segment, so I can't well, wait to hear what you think about it. Let's not spoil it. Okay, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's been covered before on the podcast, so. <laughs> Um, if you want to hear the previous Rogue episode so you don't have to listen to next week's episode, you can do that by going to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com and all 200 episodes prior to this one are listed there. You can listen to them at your, at, as you desire. You can also subscribe to our podcast on the site using multiple links we have to places like uh, Google Podcasts, uh, Amazon Podcasts, uh, Spotify. We are everywhere. Even We're even in the Apple ecosystem, Sammy. I'm and, so um, impressed with how we've been able to get in these places. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that on the website too. There's a contact form you fill out and it emails it to us. And that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with Sammy. If, if people don't want to use the web because um, reasons, what? how else could they reach out? Well, they can send an email the old-fashioned way. It's benjamin at benjaminhunting.com. 
Or you can reach out to us on social media. You can find Twitter on the, uh, I mean, you can find Ben on the filter-filled world of Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. And you can find me on Twitter, where I'm Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And I just want to say a thank you to all of our listeners who had us in their Spotify year-end wrap-up top five, top one, number one podcast that they listened to. Uh, we had some some great friends and some fans who posted that up online, and it makes us feel good to know that you're enjoying this as much as we are. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. It made my day. That was so cool. All right. Thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. See you next week. Bye.